Um, isn't that a great song? I mean, we, I, I can't think of uh, many songs, as Chris and I were talking about, where, where you actually are, are begging the Lord to return. Uh, I don't think we think enough about that. We don't pray enough about that. We don't sing enough about that. So hopefully that will become a favorite song of ours as we really implore and plead with the Lord to return soon. Even so, come. Come quickly, Lord. Um, just wait till we finish Daniel so we know it's going to happen, right? Well, that would be awesome if, um, if he came right at the end of chapter 6, and then I wouldn't have to try to figure out how to explain the rest of the book, right? Um, but for now, we're in Daniel chapter 2, so take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning, Daniel chapter 2, and we're just going to look at the first half of this chapter today. And so I'd like to read for you the first 23 verses Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any musician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. And so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. 
It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Father of heaven, you are indeed the God who is to be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to you. And I pray as we look into your word today, we would see your wisdom and your power in this narrative that we're uh, just going to walk through, that, Lord, you would be, uh, once again, the hero in our minds of this story, not Daniel, not his friends, Lord, but you and your sovereign reign over all things. And so, Lord, give us comfort this morning, give us confidence, give us hope, give us peace. And, Lord, if there's anyone here who can relate more to Nebuchadnezzar than to Daniel, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation when they truly find their rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had a very active nightlife when I was a child. My parents and babysitters would find me in all states of dress and undress, doing all sorts of strange things in the middle of the night. I was a sleepwalker. Uh, who would wake up at odd hours and get dressed for school, put clothes over my pajamas, and, or go out in the hallway and play with our thermostat and uh, tell them that I was getting the mail because we had little boxes that we had to use the combination, so I was getting the mail at times. In fact, one time my parents caught me just as, as I was about to open the last door uh, to walk out in my pajamas in the middle of a New England winter uh, into the snow, uh, barefoot and all. Um, I not only sleptwalk, I was a, a vivid dreamer, and I had these recurring nightmares that I can even still remember faintly in my mind today, this one recurring nightmare that would just completely freak me out and cause me to wake up in a cold sweat, screaming for someone to help me. In fact, there was a time when my mom brought some godly folks into my bedroom and prayed over me because they weren't sure if what I was experiencing was just some crazy stuff in my mind or maybe some kind of demonic oppression or something uh, because this became such a problem when I was a child. Well, thankfully, now I sleep like a rock <laughs> and my head hits the pillow and uh, when my alarm gets up in the morning, I don't know where I am and uh, I don't sleepwalk, at least Kelly hasn't told me that I do um, and, and I rarely remember any dreams that I have except for the occasional nightmare that I think probably every preacher has, uh, of a church. This is the nightmare I have at times. I see a church just like this, filled with people. The last song is done. You've all sat down, and I'm still in my office, like, printing out my message, you know? Or I'm driving up the street, and I'm racing, you know, going 80 miles an hour up Walden Road. You know, it's because you guys are all waiting, and I'm, like, embarrassed that my sermon wasn't ready. And I have this nightmare. It's the pastor's nightmare, you know? My wife, on the other hand, she's a dreamer. It's not uncommon for her to wake up and say, I had a really weird dream last night. You want to hear it? And I'm thinking, no. 
I could care less about what you dreamed. <laughs> but that's not the right answer if you're a loving husband. Of course, you're like, of course, honey, I would be glad to hear what you dreamed. And so she tells me her dream, and then she facetiously asks me, well, what do you think it means? And I'm like, seriously? I mean, it's a stupid dream, okay? Uh, I, couldn't, I don't know what it means, all right? And we joke about that, but there are a lot of people in our world today who want to know what their dreams mean. And they will pay big money to have them analyzed and interpreted. It's interesting that you see in every town little houses that say psychic or palm reader or, you know, you think, how do these people stay in business? Well, because there's plenty of people who frequent them and pay them money to tell them their future. Out of curiosity, I googled dream analysis and got over 16 million results. And so I thought, I'll just click on the first link here. It took me to a website called dreammoods.com. And this is what it said. Welcome to dream moods. (laughs) It didn't say it that way. I'm just saying that. That's how it sounded to me. Welcome to dream moods. You are entering a mysterious and fascinating world of dreams where the rules of reality do not apply. We hope that dream moods will help you make sense of your dreams and achieve a better understanding of them. We're dedicated to helping you find the key to unlocking and interpreting the meanings to your dreams. By understanding your dreams, you will gain a better perspective on your life. Click off, right? Well, despite what psychics and palm readers would have us believe or what dream therapists and analysts claim, dreams cannot and should not be analyzed and interpreted for a couple of reasons. First of all, while God could if he wanted to, I don't believe he speaks to us through dreams today. We shouldn't expect God to supernaturally speak to us like he did to people in the Bible while he was still delivering his word to us. Now that the process of revelation has ceased and the Bible is complete, we have everything we need to know to do God's will in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. The scripture says these things um, in words like this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Adequate. Equipped for every good work. In other words, you have everything you need in the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has granted us what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Jude 3 Jude said to contend earnestly for the faith which was, what, once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, God's revelation is done. It was a once and for all situation. And then, of course, Revelation 22, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. I'd be very careful if you, uh, of claiming that you receive some new revelation, <laughs> from God through a vision or through a dream. If you did, then, then you better get your pen out and write it in the back of Revelation, right? Well, no, you shouldn't because the Bible says don't do that. Don't add or take away anything from this word. Why? Because it's perfect, just the way it is. It, it doesn't need to be improved on. It can't be improved on. 
And so that's the first reason why we shouldn't expect God to speak to us through dreams. It's because he's given us his completed revelation. Second of all, even if God did speak to us through dreams, there is no way to verify who's doing the talking. How do you know if it was God talking to you in the dream or Satan talking to you or maybe because you ate too much pepperoni pizza at midnight before you went to bed? You don't know. Listen, there's been times I woke up and I said, honey, I had some wacky dreams last night. And it's simply because I ate too late or ate too much too late, right? And I don't know how that all affects, you know, your dreams. But the point is this, nowhere in Scripture are we encouraged or instructed to try to discern God's direction through dreams or any other mystical or subjective means. God gave us a, a better, more sure way than experience to know his will. He gave us his word. And of course, we have 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, Peter's own example. He said, listen, guys, I heard the voice of God with my own ears at the transfiguration. I saw with my own eyes the glory of Christ, and I heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I saw that, I heard that, but guess what? You have something even more sure than my experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have the Word of God. And he says this in in, uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Bottom line, he says, pay attention to the prophetic word. Pay attention to the prophetic word. Why? Because in our day, God speaks to us through his word. Now, having said all that, there was a time when God spoke to his people through dreams and visions, the time before his word was completed. And he would, on occasion, reveal things to people through dreams. And many of these dreams and visions are recorded in the scriptures Uh, And they should be analyzed, and they should be interpreted. And we have one here in Daniel chapter 2 that we will seek to analyze and interpret and see how God, what God was saying through this particular dream. Now, dreams in Scripture fall under the category of what's called prophetic or apocalyptic literature. The Greek word apocalypsis is the word which, uh, from which we get our English word apocalypse, which typically, when you think about the apocalypse, it talks about some ca- catastrophic event, something that we look forward to. It's like the end times, right? The apocalypse. And, and really the word, the original meaning of the word is, is an unveiling or a disclosing or a revelation. And so in apocalyptic literature, God unveils or discloses or reveals his future plans through visions or symbols or signs, which typically focus on his people, the nation of Israel. And Daniel is the, the first great apocalyptic book in the Bible. It's often referred to as the apocalypse of the Old Testament because of its parallels to the book of Revelation. And so what Revelation is to the New Testament, Daniel is to the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel contains the key to properly understanding the book of Revelation. You can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. Dwight Pentecost, who uh, was the beloved professor 
uh, of eschatology at uh, Dallas Seminary for years, wrote a, a classic book called Things to Come. This is what he said, quote, the themes introduced in Daniel come to their ultimate consummation in the book of Revelation. To understand fully the culmination of God's program revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation, it is necessary to understand the inception of his program revealed to Daniel. And so by studying the book of Daniel, it's like we're given a key to unlock the mysteries of Revelation. Now what is unique about Daniel is that not only does it reveal God's future plans for the nation of Israel, and we're going to see that in chapters 8 through 12, but it also reveals God's plans, future plans, for the Gentile nations. And we're going to see that beginning here in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7. And really here in chapter 2, Daniel recorded the most comprehensive prophetic picture in the Old Testament of the history of the world under Gentile rule. It's referred to as the times of the Gentiles. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus even referred to this, this season of where Israel has been uh, overcome um, and, 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 and put on the back burner, if you will, and the Gentile nations have taken front and center uh, uh, position in, in, in world uh, um, world history and, and, and world uh, and, and nations, okay? Uh, it's called the times of the Gentiles. Romans eleven twenty five. Paul says this, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you'll not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The point is that we are living in the times of the Gentiles where the focus uh, of the Lord is on the Gentiles, not that the Jews aren't important, it's not like the Jews don't have a future, right? But right now, the emphasis in, in, in God's mission, God's plan for his people are the Gentiles. The Gentiles coming to know Christ, um, the Jews' Messiah. And so the times of the Gentiles just simply refers to the time period when Gentile nations rule over the world. And it began here when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the nation of Judah, and it will end at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he returns and conquers all the nations and sets up his earthly kingdom headquartered in Israel. And we're learning here, as a result of Israel's rebellion and disobedience, God transferred the leadership of the world from the Jews to who? The Gentiles. And while Israel has been restored as a nation, we know that presently there's a nation of Israel now, Gentile nations still dominate the world and will continue to dominate the world until Christ returns and again destroys them and restores Israel to the fullness of her glory as promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And in the meantime, we have the book of Daniel, where God provided stories and visions of Daniel to assure his people, primarily the nation of Israel who were in exile at the time, but also us as God's people, that their present situation was not permanent. Yes, the holy city 
of Jerusalem was destroyed. Their temple was in ruins. Their sacred vessels were being housed in a foreign temple. They were weeping by the rivers of Babylon without a song in their heart. But there would come a day when God would fulfill all of his promises to Israel and restore them to world dominance through the coming of their king, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that background, let's look at the first prophetic dream recorded in the book of Daniel. And I've broken up the narrative here in chapter 2 into six sections to give just some hooks on which to hang our thoughts as we go through this. We, we're not going to get through all of these this morning, uh, but we might get through the first, first half of it at least, okay? So first of all, let's look at the king who was perturbed, okay? That's the first verse. The king was perturbed, um, Verse 1, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Hence the title sleepless in Babylon, right? He was having a hard time sleeping these days. Why? Because he was bothered by this recurring dream that kept him up at night. And, and, and this was so, this dream, whatever it was, was so unsettling that he spent many restless nights either laying awake, staring at the ceiling, or, or tossing and turning in bed, worrying about what the dream might mean. And again, I'm no dream expert, but my theory of dreams is that there are subconscious mind working overtime on a problem or issue in our lives. I'm sure you find that true in your experience, that we, you typically dream about the things that you spend a lot of time worrying about or mulling over in your minds during the day, right? Why do you think I have this nightmare of not being ready with a sermon when you guys are ready for it? I, I think about that every day. I got the double-barrel shotgun up against my head every week. Got to come up with two sermons, right? And, and, uh, and so there's this pressure that I live under, and so I, sometimes my subconscious mind is working on that when I sleep. So what was going on with Nebuchadnezzar here, if that is true? Well, being the megalomaniac that we're about to see that he was, who who builds a statue of himself and says, everybody bow down and worship me, only a, a, a man who is into himself, who thinks more highly of himself than he ought, to say the least, Nebuchadnezzar probably spent most of his waking hours pondering his kingdom. And maybe more than anything, the future of his kingdom. What was going to be his legacy? And I think this initial description here of Nebuchadnezzar epitomizes the truth about all those who live their lives apart from God. It says his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. If you're not a believer here this morning, you, you know what that's like. It may not be that you have insomnia, that you have a hard time sleeping, but you know what? Your heart is restless. And it's not just restless at night. It's restless all day, every day. Why? Because as the, as the great church father Augustine said, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. That's why you struggle with this restlessness, this, this, this uneasiness, this lack of peace. Because your heart is not, does not belong to God. You're living apart from God and you're doing your own thing. And ultimately, you think you're the king of your life. And that you're the master of your own destiny. Hey, listen, I'd be right there with you. If I, if I thought that it was all about me and that it was up to me and my destiny depended on me, and man, I'll tell you what, I'd be freaking out every day. 
I'd be all anxious and nervous, and we all would be. And so here we see this powerful leader who possessed everything, including a, a city whose gardens would one day be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And yet he lacked the most important thing, peace. He lacked peace. And if you lack peace this morning, and if you can relate to Nebuchadnezzar, it may be that you are not truly saved, that you've never truly found your rest in God through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, through his, his life lived on your behalf and his death died in your place. You may have everything. You may have power. You may have possessions. You may have a great reputation. You may have built all this stuff, but you're like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew that he was still missing something. And if that's true of you, it's who you're missing is Christ. And so we see the king here was perturbed. And then secondly, we see the wise men were pressured. The wise men were pressured. And in desperation, Nebuchadnezzar turned to the smartest men in the Babylonian empire to help him figure out this dream that was causing him so much angst. And these wise men were exactly who they're referred to here, magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and astrologers. They were the psychics, they were the palm readers, they were the horoscope writers, the stargazers of Daniel's day who who claimed to be able to foretell uh, the future through scientific or occultic means. Listen to how Daniel describes them. Then the king gave orders to call on the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious and to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, which stopped there for a second. Interesting. This was, Aramaic was, uh, I mean, by the way, up, up, to, up until this point, we've been reading what language in the original Hebrew, right? But from chapter 2, verse 4, the text changes to Aramaic all the way through the end of chapter 7. Interesting. And we talk about how the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek with some Aramaic thrown in the mix, a little bit in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament. Well, here is the main section in the Old Testament where uh, Aramaic is, is used, and and. Uh, why was that? Well, it was the international language used all over the Middle and Near East at the time. And I think the reason, this is just my opinion here, the reason why the, the text shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic, because the focus of chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, is, is the Gentile nations. What is the destiny, the future of the Gentile nations? The times of the Gentiles. And so it's, it, so it's written in Aramaic. And then it, the reason why it shifts back to Hebrew in chapter 8 is because the, the, the focus returns to the destiny of the nation of Israel. Who speaks what? What's the national language of the Jews? Hebrew, right? And so they came to the king here and they said in Aramaic, O king, live forever, which was a standard court etiquette. Um, we're, as we read a little bit more about these guys, it was probably more like... They were kissing up to the king here. Oh, king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. 
And so they came to him like they had probably many times before and said, oh, the king's, king had another dream. Let's go, let's go, let's go hear, hear what it was and, and then we'll consult together and we'll make up some interpretation. We just got to make sure our, our, our stories, you know, we get our story straight. And we all say the same thing, right? And so they tell us your dream and, and we'll tell you what it means. And again, they had a relatively easy job considering the fact that they could pretty much make anything up that they wanted. They could say, well, it means this or it means this. But not this time, because this time the king told them that he not only wanted them to tell him the, what the dream meant, but he needed, they needed to tell him the dream first. Verse 5, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and a great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. It's almost like, <laughs> you, you must be kidding. Come on, king, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. It's like, you can't be serious. The king replied, verse 8, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time, and as much as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. So he wanted to make sure absolutely sure that they gave him an accurate interpretation because this dream was very troubling to him and he he sensed that it revealed something about his future destiny and he had to make sure that they interpreted accurately and so he put their abilities to the test and he reasoned that if, if they could foretell the future then they should be able to recall the past but if they couldn't tell him what he had dreamt, which was a much easier task than telling him what the dream meant, then their predictions of the future couldn't be trusted. And he would know for certain that he'd been, they'd been deceiving him all these years and they deserved to die. I mean, you get the feeling here that Nebuchadnezzar was fed up with these guys and he knew that they were a bunch of counterfeits and con artists. And it was a big kind of charade that they would go through every time he had a dream and they would do the same thing. He said, no, not this time. And so they protested that he was making an unreasonable request that no one in human history had ever expected their wise men to do what, we, what he was asking. And besides, no one can do this except the gods. Notice what he says in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is a lot, not a man on earth who could declare the matter. You're asking the impossible here. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there was no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Well, they got that part right. They just forgot about Daniel, and they didn't know about the God of heaven. And so they're basically saying, this is, this, what you're asking is humanly impossible. And Nebuchadnezzar calls her bluff here and says, you guys are just stalling for time. And like most ancient rulers who had unlimited power and authority, they could do whatever they want. And Nebuchadnezzar was notoriously temperamental. He was unpredictable. And in a fit of rage, he declared that they were all to die. 
not just any death, but torn or hacked to pieces, torn limb from limb, hacked to pieces, and their houses burned and turned into trash piles or latrines. Verse 12, because this this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. What hacked this guy off so much? Was it these con artists? The, these guys that have been um, dishonest with him? And he was just fed up with them? And their little game that they played with him every time he asked them to interpret a dream? That may have been part of it. But I appreciate the thought of Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary that what really riled up Nebuchadnezzar was when they said that only the gods can do this. No, no one can do this except the gods. And this is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He said, when these pagan intellectuals casually reminded him that they and he were human and not gods, because he said that, verse 11, no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. We're, we're a bunch of mortals here, not gods. So when they casually reminded him that, he, that they and he were human and not gods, he flew into a rage and reacted in a way that is reminiscent of the words of the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Remember Nietzsche? He was famous for his statement, God is what? Dead. This is what Nietzsche said. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Is that not the height of arrogance? Hey, if there is a God, how can I not bear to know that I'm not him? You may have seen that classic t-shirt. On the front it says, there is a God. And on the back it says, and you're not him. That was the, that was the conflict in, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. This guy was an egomaniac. And he, I think, ultimately wanted to be God. Ferguson goes on, he says, Nebuchadnezzar's conflict was the conflict of everyone. He was ill-prepared to allow God to show himself to be God and Lord of all history. He was unwilling for God to be the God and Lord of his life. He goes on, what haunted him about his dream was that God was saying in it, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom may be great, but it will fade and decay. Only the kingdom I build will stand and last forever. God, not Nebuchadnezzar, was and is God. And it's interesting when you look at the book of Revelation. After all the destruction and the punishment and the judgment that God will bring on the world during the time of tribulation, you would think it would have a softening effect on people. They're like, okay, God, we, we give, okay, uncle, uncle, tapping out here. <laughs> we, there's no, you were no match for you. But what does it say? Did they get soft and humble? They just got madder and madder. They're going to get more angry. 
more hostile to God. Why? Because ultimately they're, they're unwilling for God to be God. They don't want to submit to Him and obey Him and honor Him as the Lord of their lives. That's what Romans 1 talks about, right? Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Rather than giving God thanks and honor and thanks, they, they, they decided that in their foolish hearts they were darkened and they said, oh, we don't want God. We want our sin. I'll never forget, um, we were living in California and we were apartment managers uh, during the 1994 Northridge quake. And uh, we were really close to the epicenter. And at 4.31 that morning, we started having our quiet time really fast. I mean, it was the most passionate quiet time my wife had ever had. It was a, it was a, we were having a couple's devotions laying in our bed when all of a sudden, I'm being facetious here. You guys think I'm being, being serious. Right? I'm being facetious. Okay. We're, we're laying in bed, 4.31, all of a sudden, our bed is flying in the air in our bedroom, okay, and we're hearing all this commotion and all this cracking and crushing and tr- smashing of stuff, and we know, we're, we're, this, this is, we're thinking this is the big one that they always talk about, you know, San Andreas Fault, man, we're, California's falling off into the ocean, here we go. And so we started having our quiet time really fast. We were crying out to God for mercy, that God would, would spare our lives. We thought we were going to die. And so after the earthquake settled down and I got Kelly situated in a little doorway, safe place. She was nine months pregnant with Zachariah and it was my responsibility as the apartment manager. I felt obligated to go around and make sure everybody was okay, make sure everybody was alive. And so I went from door to door knocking and making sure. And I'll never forget one of our neighbors standing out. He was standing out there hanging over the balcony and he goes, man, I'm mad. I'm like, why? He goes, because it just broke all my stuff. <laughs> I was like, dude, whoa. I said, I, you're mad. I was, I was crying out to God for mercy and thanking him for <laughs> sparing our lives. And, and who could care about our stuff? Man, our stuff was all over the, uh, the house too, you know, smashed. And, but this guy was mad. There was no acknowledgement of God. I mean, he, he, he was mad because he wasn't in control. There was another force that was a lot more powerful than he was. And he had no ability to control his situation and to protect his life and to protect his stuff. It's interesting how we, how we sometimes get mad at God when we fail to submit to him as our Lord. And so we see the pressure that these Chaldeans, these conjurers, these soothsayers were put under by this angry king who had to know the answer. To this dream. Well, in contrast to the restlessness of Nebuchadnezzar and the frantic scurrying around of the conjurers and Chaldeans, what are we going to do? We're going to die. Let's look at the servants of God who prayed. The servants of God who, who prayed. And we know that at the end of verse 14, it talks about, or the end of verse 13, it says they look for Daniel and his friends to kill them. This kingdom-wide roundup of all the the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the, the counselors it included Daniel and his three friends. 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so when, when Daniel heard about the king's threat, he, he humbly entered the king's presence and appealed for a stay of execution. Notice verse 14, then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. And so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And so again, it just shows Daniel's courage. I think it also shows uh, the relationship that he had with the king. Um, Basically, the king had made him his right-hand man, and so he had direct access to the king, and so he took advantage of that to appeal to the king. And so, apparently, the king agreed and said, okay, you've got 24 hours. You've got a week. We don't know what he said. But look at verse 17. I love this. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I can just imagine here Daniel going back to the dorm room with the buddy, with his buddy. Hey, guys, listen up. Okay? The king had a dream, and uh, he's telling all of us that if we don't tell him the dream and the interpretation, we're all toast. And uh, in fact, I met Arioch, and he was coming to kill us, and I said, hey, hold up. Let me go talk to the king a little bit. And so I just told the king that, 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 that I could tell him what his dream was and meant, and so let's pray. <laughs> Because I don't have a clue what his dream was or what it means. But let's, let's pray. Or we're goners. And so you know there was a sense of desperation here that, hey, we got to pray, guys. Because I just told the king that we could, we could come up with the answer he's looking for. And I don't have a clue what the answer is. It's a mystery. And so what we see here. is a great example, I think, for all of us. Throughout this book, we see Daniel and his friends portrayed as great men of faith who demonstrated their confidence and independence on God through prayer. Notice he says in verse 18, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. In other words, how do you request compassion from the God of heaven? You pray. Daniel chapter 6, why did he end up in the lion's den to begin with? Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, what document? It was a document that uh, all the other conjurers had come up with to, to kind of catch Daniel and, and, and be a part of his downfall and say, hey, Darius, why don't you sign a, a decree that says nobody can uh, petition anybody but you for the next month, and if they're caught petitioning anybody but you for the next month, then they're going, to go, they're going to die. They're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem. How cool is that? And he continued kneeling on his knees 
three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. In other words, he knew very well, uh, full well about the decree, and it didn't matter to him. He was gonna, it was gonna, he was gonna keep praying. That's what he always did. That was his habit. That was his practice. That was the pattern of his life, praying three times a day, giving thanks to God. He was a man of prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, we actually get to hear one of his prayers. We don't have the time to, to read it all here, but if you just look at verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel prays for his people. He was, he was discovering there, he was reading um, Jeremiah. And he read how it said that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years and that time had come Come, it had been 70 years. And so he said, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, slack, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, and then you have this great prayer all the way down through verse 19. One of the, one of the best prayers in the Bible. We always talk about praying, praying like the Apostle Paul, praying the prayers of Paul, Right? How about praying the prayer of Daniel here in Daniel chapter 9? A great example, a great model, something that you could pray through and make your own. The point is, whenever they faced a crisis, their knee-jerk reaction was just that, to hit their knees, turn to God, acknowledge their inability and his ability, that's essentially what they were acknowledging. Hey, we don't have a clue what this dream was. It's a mystery to us. We're, we're completely unable in and of ourselves to figure this out. This situation is beyond us, God. By the way, that's why you pray, right? Prayer is an expression of your inability. That apart from Christ, you can do what? Nothing. And so you pray. It's a declaration of dependence on the Lord. I need you, God. I can't live this day without you. I can't do this job without you. I can't shepherd these kids without you. I can't, you fill in the blank. I need you. And when earthly wisdom fails, we need to seek heavenly wisdom. That's what we see. The contrast here is the Chaldeans were like, Seriously, we, this is impossible. From, from an earthly perspective, this is impossible. And so when earthly wisdom fails, you need to seek heavenly wisdom. I think it's interesting, and we've already looked at this in the previous weeks, that the emphasis in this book, the favorite title for God is the God of what? The King of heaven, the God of heaven. Five times we see this in this context, verse 18 so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the, in the night vision that Daniel blessed the God of heaven, verse 28. However, there was a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. What does James 1.5 say? If anyone lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask of God. Where does God live? Heaven, right? 
the God of heaven, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do? What what is your knee-jerk reaction? When you don't know what to do, what do you do? I hope it's pray, right? I'll never forget something that happened to me uh, when I was in college. And uh, Kelly and I were uh, finished the semester. Um, We were traveling back up to Washington to meet her folks, and we just started dating. And and, uh, so we were driving up the coast of California together. We had another group of students with us four girls in this Plymouth Fury, this old Plymouth Fury. The steering was about this big. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was this crazy old clunker of a car. And so we were driving in Kelly's car, and they were kind of following us away, and we traveled together up the coast. And, and so we were just having a great time, college students going up, you know, enjoying the, the, the West Coast and excited about going home for the summer. And, and uh, everything was just wonderful. And we had made it to Coos Bay, Oregon, if you've ever been up that way. It's a beautiful area. And we stopped by Dairy Queen, because you've got to get a blizzard every once in a while, right? So we got a blizzard, and we were heading out of town. It was probably maybe 9 o'clock at night, and uh, we're driving along. And the whole time, I had been keeping these girls in the rearview mirror, kind of the only guy in the group, and I was wanting to make sure they had everything they needed. So I'm keeping them in the rearview mirror, and we're driving along, and I'm beating the blizzard and looking for their their lights are there. And all of a sudden, I look down, look back, and their lights aren't there. So I slowed down a little bit, like you would, right, And, and waited for them to catch up. And I slowed down even more, and they still didn't catch up. And then I stopped waiting for them, and they didn't come. So that's funny. So we turned around and headed back. And as I came around this corner, I saw off in the distance their headlights on the side of the road. I thought, oh, they, they pulled over. Something must have happened. Maybe they had a flat tire or something. So as I pulled up to the car, here they were facing this way. As I pulled up next to them, I looked across the street, and their car was not parked along the side of the road. It was upside down. And it was smoking. And, and, and it was flat. Like, you couldn't even see, uh, the, the whole top part had collapsed in. Like, there was no windows, if you will. And all I could see was one leg of a girl pinned in that car. And so I said, Kelly, stay here. And I jumped out of the car, and I ran over there, and there was nothing I could do. I, I just, I, you couldn't open the doors. I, I mean, these girls were trapped in this car. It's smoking. I don't know what's going to happen to this thing. And all I remember doing is going behind the car and kneeling down against the bumper and crying out to God for mercy and say, God, please have mercy, have compassion. Would you deliver these girls? Would you protect them? Would you save them? Would you rescue them? Next thing I know, I'm standing up and three of the girls are out of the car standing right behind me. And they're fine. They're just freaked out. Their hair's all messed up, you know. And, and, and then the next thing I know, there's a guy who has come up on the accident and he was an off-duty paramedic. First guy on the scene was there was able to extract that girl who was left in their pen. Thankfully, she just uh, tweaked her neck a little bit, didn't break any bones. We spent one night there in Coos Bay, ended up getting home. Uh, the next day, car was wrecked, trashed, left in a junkyard somewhere in Coos Bay. But God spared these girls' lives. What looked like, when I drove, I thought they were dead. The point is, I didn't know what to do. I was helpless, completely helpless. We were out in the middle of nowhere, literally out in the middle of nowhere, complete darkness, and I hit my knees, and God was gracious. I don't even remember what I prayed. I don't remember how long I prayed. It was like everything was going slow motion, right? But 
hopefully you never think, well, I, 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 I don't have time to pray. I just got to do something. No, you got to have time to pray, right? First thing is pray. Listen, the, the same principle applies to a wreck in your marriage. Maybe your marriage has just, you know, experienced a major wreck. You could say your marriage is a wreck. Maybe your children are a wreck. Maybe your health is a wreck. Maybe your finances are a wreck. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You get on your knees and you pray. Like these servants of God model for us. Whenever we're in a crisis situation, we need to resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands and and instead take it to the Lord in prayer. And, And Daniel was convinced that God could miraculously reveal the dream to him And if and when he did, it would serve as an undeniable proof to Nebuchadnezzar and all the wise men that the God of Israel was the wisest and most powerful God in the universe. And so God honored their request for compassion and mercy and answered their prayer. And notice how Daniel praised him. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Notice how he focuses here his praise on on two attributes of God, God's wisdom and God's power. In other words, he knows the end from the beginning and has the power to do what he's determined to do. He remains sovereign over all the events of the world and divinely orchestrates the destinies of kings and and nations. Notice he says in verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. What Daniel was acknowledging there in his prayer of praise and thanksgiving was that God decides who sits on thrones and who wins elections. That's what that means. It is he who changes changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Listen, from our vantage point here on earth, it appears that, that certain leaders come to power by their own wisdom and their own power. We need to remember that no one ever becomes a world leader apart from God's choice. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by the Democratic or Republican parties. No, those who exist are established by God. God places people in positions of authority And at any time he wants, he can remove them from their throne or office and set up another person in their place. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar was sitting on the throne in Babylon because God put him there to accomplish his will. And Barack Obama is sitting in the Oval Office in Washington because God put him there to accomplish his will for our nation and the world. 
And granted, under his presidency, we've seen unprecedented changes occur in our country, and it appears that we have more to come. And from a human standpoint, it's both sad and scary to consider where our country is headed, and I do not know what would be a worse judgment from God to have Hillary Clinton as our president or Donald Trump as our president. (laughs) But either way, I believe it would be God's judgment on our nation. And that's what we have to remember, that we know where the world's headed. And that ultimately, this world is not our home. We are ultimately citizens of heaven, and our real ruler is the king of heaven, who rules over this world of pawns. Now, that doesn't give us a, the right to disrespect or dishonor our human rulers or just sit back and let our country go to hell in a handbasket, as they say. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, talks about our responsibility as as citizens, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. As American citizens, I think we have a biblical responsibility to vote and to petition and to most of all pray. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I think it's, we're talking about prayer here, right? I think it's, it's through prayer that may be the most important way to keep our eyes on God so we don't freak out about all the things that are happening and lay awake at night worrying about what the future holds for our country. See, the purpose of biblical prophecy is to provide us with peace and assurance that while things seem to be spinning out of control, we have no need to fear because God is ultimately the one controlling everything. And our response to Daniel's praise here in Daniel chapter 2 should be one of confidence, knowing that the Lord has everything under control, and one day He will reign over all things. And so what should we do? We should be worshiping and praising alongside Daniel. Listen, whenever we face uncertain times or, or crisis in our lives, you can choose to respond one of two ways. You can worry like Nebuchadnezzar, Or you can worship like Daniel. Our prayer should be, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it in heaven. That should be our prayer. And our passion should be to tell others about how they could be part of God's everlasting kingdom by establishing a a relationship with his appointed King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. In other words, our hope is not in our government. Our hope is in the gospel. And that's why we're here, to spread the gospel. And as things get worse and worse in our country, guess what? It's just going to get easier and easier to share the gospel. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says it well. He says, see what God is doing in this one event? We've just been looking at one event here this morning. 
He's testing the faith of Daniel and his companions. And in doing so, he's strengthening them for the great trials of faith that lie ahead in the burning furnace and in the lion's den. Guess what? There may be some, some serious stuff coming our way as Christians here in America. And, and right now, God's just testing our faith. And he's strengthening us for the trials of faith that may come in the future that could be likened to burning furnaces and, 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 and lion's dens. At the same time, and through the same events, he is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. He brings circumstances to bear on his life that are calculated to show him his smallness, to reveal his sinful heart, and to humble him before the Lord. Do you believe that right now God may be working in the hearts of the presidential candidates and Bernie Sanders' heart and Hillary Clinton's heart and, 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 and Donald Trump's heart and, and, and we hope, obviously, in Ted Cruz's heart and Marco Rubio's heart, and, right? But the point is, even in these unbelieving leaders, is God at work in their lives to show them their smallness? Do you think that God cares as much about the, the, the megalomaniacs of, of our generation as he did to Nebuchadnezzar? There's a guy in our country right now running for president that reminds me a whole lot of Nebuchadnezzar. Did God care about did God care about Nebuchadnezzar and love him enough to want to humble him so that he could have a relationship with the one true God? Absolutely. We got to pray for these people. We, we don't want to just talk bad about them. We need to pray for them because God's at work in their lives in the same way he's at work in our lives. And then finally, he says, as we shall see in the next section, he's revealing his purposes to his people through this pagan monarch. Truly, wisdom and might are his. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was just a pawn that God revealed a dream to in the middle of the night so that he could reveal his plans for his people. And notice, just as we close, let's just read here, verse 24, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Looks like he's trying to pat himself on the back a little bit there, maybe. Taking credit. But notice how Daniel gives all the glory to God, takes no credit whatsoever. King said, king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered before the king and said, yep, that's me. No, he said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And we could add, in light of how Nebuchadnezzar responds at the end of this chapter, and so that you could worship and praise and honor the one true God. We'll come back next week to find out what the king dreamed and what it means. Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word and how timely, how relevant it is 
to the day and age in which we're living. And Father, it is sad, it is scary uh, to see what's taking place in our world and particularly in our country that we love so much and are so grateful to have been born and raised here. Lord, but we know ultimately we're not American citizens, we're aliens and strangers, we're citizens of heaven. And I pray we'd keep that in proper perspective these next few weeks, these next few months as we see this whole election thing unfold. Lord, that we would strike that perfect balance of being faithful citizens of earth and faithful citizens of heaven. And Lord, ultimately what we would care about most is the gospel, telling others about Jesus Christ and capitalizing on their fear, their worry, their concern, Lord, that they might be having in their hearts and their minds, that we would be able to show them how they can be at peace in their heart, in their life, through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.